<laughs> Hello and welcome everybody. Welcome back to the Cat Spirit Hour. Hope you had an okay week. I know it's been a really stressful and long week for everybody. Uh, it has been for us as well. So hopefully you're happy at home. We have made improvements to our set, if you haven't noticed. Uh, that's If you haven't noticed, you're probably an audio listener. Or this is the first time listening to the podcast because you found us by searching DC Attack. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is understandable. Uh, but we've added our bona fide neon sign. We've got some furniture. We've got a case for all of our goodies now. We don't have to keep everything on the table anymore. We have a hidden zebra lamp. We do a <laughs> hidden zebra lamp. We did what we do best. We converted a stressful week into a productive week. Yeah. This is the outcome. If you're an audio listener, whatever you imagine the set to be, imagine it 10% better. Yeah, it's just nicer now. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's upgraded. It's significantly shinier. We uh, we finally fulfilled our dream of becoming a true YouTuber podcast. Yeah, we have a neon we sign. We have a neon sign. <laughs> we did it, guys. We did it. Look so at that. we're ah? essentially H3, cold ones, hot ones. Let's go million listeners, viewers, yeah. subscribers. Shit, we should learn what those are called <laughs> if we want them. Welcome we back you. to the Acid Cat Boomer Hour. <laughs> God. Where we both time travel and act significantly older than we are. So, with everything in light of what happened this week... Time to get super serious. Yes. Uh, th- we wanted to start lighthearted because this week's episode is very serious and we want to take it as such. Uh, so we want to get the jokes and laughs out of the way. Tell you that this is a serious episode. Yeah, uh, which means that there is a trigger warning at some point. We are going to be talking about violence towards children, a child. Um, we'll let you know when it happens. I'll put a timestamp. Uh, if you're an audio listener, it'll be in the description. If you're a, a YouTube watcher, it'll be in the description, but I'll try to put it in the timeline as well, just so you know when to avoid it if it's something that you don't feel comfortable uh, hearing us talk about, which we 100% understand. Uh, the good news about this story is that it already happened. It's come to a conclusion. Yes. Often we talk about unsolved mysteries or more vague things. Today we're talking about a, a very, very solved case. So there is that to take away from it. Um, but it is a dark case. It DC's been on everybody's minds, and violence in DC has been on everybody's minds. Um, and that made me think back to... And that was in the early 2000s. Um, and that was with uh, who we're going to talk about today, which were the Beltway Snipers, the DC Snipers. Yeah, and it was super interesting to me because when you brought it up, I hadn't heard of it. Um uh, I, when you explain it to me a little bit, the only thing that came to mind was, uh, I believe, a Bones episode. Yeah, yeah, pop pop culture reference. And we both started talking to people. I talked to my mom. She vaguely remembered it. We talked to a couple people we know, and everyone had a varying degree from not knowing at all to knowing a little bit to knowing some more than others. I think that speaks to it being solved. There's a, you know, we have a psychological bias known as proportional bias and what it tells us is that as human beings if something's important to us we have a more difficult time physiologically uh, reconciling that thing happening so like a good example is presidential assassination so jfk gets shot he dies it's a huge deal because he died everybody wants to you got to get to the bottom of and it's a huge deal regardless but it's a huge deal because he passed you look at reagan's assassination attempt reagan survives that within weeks you've forgotten about the person i think that while this was very scary at the time so it stuck with me i'm not sure that it's something that once it was solved stuck with too many people um and it was also in 2002 and it was over the course of 2002 and the year previous we had September 11th. I don't know if you guys know this, but a thing happened on September 11th that really kind of changed everything, and it's all that anybody talked about. So mm-hmm. I think it was a little easier for this to get lost in the shuffle than the average uh, sort of serial killer summer. And you know, we still talk about Zodiac because we don't. We, Ted Cruz hasn't gotten arrested for that yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. We we still talk about some of these killers, but. Even the infamy that somebody like Ed Gein lives in or Ted Bundy, you see these people, these cases were solved. They were figured out. I think there's, I think there are a couple things about this case. I think the fact that the two killers were black makes it harder for people to want to attach themselves to, which sucks, but I think it's true. And I think the fact that they were two Muslim men effectively saying that they were going to kidnap children to create an army, I think that's a thing that, uh, maybe didn't last with people in the same way. Again, because September 11th had just happened. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, there were a lot of relatively similar 
fears. We'll call them fears. So before we talk about everything that happened, we have to introduce the two men behind. Yeah, yeah, the aforementioned men. So first I'll talk about John Allen Muhammad, formerly John Allen Williams. Um, He was a National Guard member and an Army serviceman. Um, He was seemingly radicalized immediately post uh, 9-11 because he converted to Islam. And I'm not saying in any way that converting to Islam is a radical decision, but he converted to Islam, converted his adopted son to Islam, and then went on a killing spree. He was was very outwardly vocal that he was radicalized and he converted to Islam because he was radicalized. Once again, we want to make it very clear. We condemn their actions and we also do not tie. Yeah. To be super clear, their actions to the religion. We know. Yeah. And we know full well that with everything that happened last Wednesday, we are also sort of threading the needle here. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're not trying to impose anything. We're Mm -hmm. not making any larger accusations. We're not doing anything of the sort. We're just saying, Hey, something scary happened in DC because of blind radicalism. Remember that time 20 years ago that happened and what it was like. Yes. Uh, So that's what we want to talk about today. We don't want to make it too heavy or too scary, but it is a word worthwhile endeavor. And like you said, I think it's one that maybe a lot of people haven't fully explored. So uh, to go back to Muhammad, he was a man who on the outside definitely seemed like he had it together. He had kids and three children uh, with his first wife. He was uh, twice divorced. Um, He had two wives and that's how that works. You got to have two of them. Well, I guess you don't. You could have three if you're twice divorced. (laughs) You just haven't divorced that third one yet. I didn't even know you could impeach a president twice. (laughs) So anything's possible, really. So (laughs) that's also has to do with having multiple wives. (laughs) It does. Yeah. (laughs) With pretty much the same name. Uh, So he all, you know, he's a serviceman. He's a vet. He's got three kids. By all accounts, he seems like a pretty well put together guy. He's working as a mechanic. The guys who know him don't really see anything super, you know, he's, he was described as being very kind with his children, very understanding. He wouldn't yell with them until a point. And then there was a time when he just sort of was described as being different, sort of aloof, uh, my father likes to call it a uh, hundred feet from a thousand yard stare. You know, just just ready to kind of turn the lights off. Just something just shifted. Yep. And with that, he became more violent. He started abusing his wife, which would lead to um, criminal charges as well as uh, uh, restraining orders um, and things that would push him further and further. I think from normal normal civility that maybe would lead him. On the path that he would go down. Uh, but he was a man who was also uh, allegedly, so- somewhat allegedly involved in human trafficking. Um, I say somewhat allegedly because the types of people he was trafficking are alleged, but he was involved in human trafficking. He yes. could get you illegal papers. That's how he got his adopted son and accomplice in this case, uh, Lee Malvo. That's how he got him into the country, which you'll go into. But Mm -hmm. he was not unfamiliar with the less reputable side of life. And he was involved in human trafficking. And in doing so, he met Lee uh, Boyd Malvo in Jamaica um, in 1999. And why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so Lee Boyd Malvo is the second man in this. Uh, He was born in Jamaica His father quickly uh, exited the picture when he was about five years old. Malvo and his mother moved from Jamaica to Kingston. Then, er, Kingston's still in Jamaica, but they moved from (laughs) Endeavor to Kingston. Yeah, they moved to the big city. And then the island uh, St. Martin. And then after that, they moved to Antigua and Barbuda. And that is when Malvo's mother met. Muhammad yeah, in Antigua, right? Yes, in, in Antigua in 1999, and this is where his mother and Muhammad made a strong friendship, and he was always around. And like you said, Muhammad was known for falsifying documents to get to smuggle people from country to country. Absolutely. Malvo's mother asked Muhammad for papers. Using those papers, made her way to Fort Myers, Florida, and left her son Malvo with Muhammad planning to have him follow her later saying like i'm gonna go now once i get settled bring my son yeah, over Yeah, totally that makes sense like let me go when i moved family when we were kids you know my dad went ahead for a couple months mm-hmm. and during that time uh muhammad converted malvo to islam as well and 
apparently kept him very distant from his mother that whole time. Well, yeah, I would imagine, you know, like he's radicalizing this child. Yes, he he's creating that divide and uh, converting him and taking care of him, which caused this very father-son bond to happen. And then in 2001, both of them moved to Miami and then made their way up to Seattle, where they reunited with his mother. But there was still that divide. They were then found by Border Patrol and were arrested. Then... Two months later, he was released on a $15,000 bond. His mother was deported, and he then started living in a homeless shelter with Muhammad. After that, Muhammad falsified more documentation, surprisingly, claiming to be Malvo's father and enlisted him in Bellingham High School, where he really didn't make any friends. A lot of people said, like, he was distant, he was weird, just... Yeah, one of his classmates was quoted as saying that he was incredibly quiet uh, over the course of all the classes, except for when one movie was playing with a lot of firearms in it, he knew every single gun. Yes, uh, which brings the to... The quiet kid that knows a lot about guns. Which brings us to the gun of this case. Yep. And the car of this case. Absolutely, yeah. So I'll I'll describe the car. So the car is a really special part of all of this. It's actually currently in a museum. Well, the trunk is. The trunk is the interesting part of this car because it was a four-door Chevy K car. So it's not that. It was a Caprice. It was a cop car um, at the time. wasn't really all. It wasn't a cop car, but that type of car was used as a cop car. Yes. Yeah, I should clarify. Um, but, you know, little square-bodied uh, blue Chevy. But what they had done is in the back, they had knocked down the back seat and built a uh, sniper's perch, effectively laid it into the trunk, and then in the trunk, drilled out the keyhole for the barrel of uh, the rifle that they had, and then another hole in the top through where the logo had been so that you could see with the scope. That way, they were shooting from their vehicle. And their efforts in this crime spree that they would go on that we're going to describe uh, were all executed. Well, not all were primarily executed from the back seat, the sniper perch that they'd built into this car. Uh, and they primarily used a specific weapon while they were still in Washington in Tacoma, which plays a big part later. So remember Tacoma. I mean, Tacoma plays a big part in a lot of bad... I would argue that Tacoma, more than most cities, has hosted the worst moment in someone's life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as we talked about with a previous episode... Our year in review episode, the Tacoma Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tacoma's not a great place, but there was a gun store called Bullseye Shooter Supply in Tacoma uh, where Malvo was able to shoplift a Bushmaster uh, X, XM15, yep. which is a 225. It's a hunting rifle. Yep. He was able to just yank it from the store well the store had a like a why a gun store has a reputation like this but they had a reputation as an easy place to steal a gun from exactly yeah why on earth you'd want to be the store that's easy to steal a gun from i do not know apparently it was very common for people just like hey can i see that gun they'd hand it to them and they'd go back talking to their coworkers, and people would just walk out <laughs> They're also known to be really shoddy with... There's a bank across the street that hates that gun store. <laughs> and then they go, hey, can I return this? And it's like, wait, you bought that? Never mind. Uh, I just don't want it anymore. They also were terrible at keeping track of when they sold a weapon, documenting it. Yeah, 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 terrible at. There was also a firing range right next to it. I'd like to point out just to everybody, because it was a part of my childhood... At this time period in northern Idaho and all the way throughout Washington, it was nothing but skinheads. Just skinhead racist assholes everywhere, and they love those rifles. They all carry them. It's that and bats. I'm not in any way surprised to hear that a gun shop in Tacoma did a bad job of keeping track of skinhead's favorite gun. There was also a shooting range right next that was associated with the bullseye shooter supply. That does play a big part. Yeah, so keep, remember that, keep as that well. in mind. Remember Tacoma. Remember Remember Alamo. Tacoma. Remember the Alamo. The three and things you remember. Tacoma, the Alamo, and remember, remember the 5th of November. That firing range does take a big part in this case. And lastly, neither one of them were allowed to own weapons of any sorts. Muhammad having domestic abuse charges. Yeah, those charges against his wife, the restraining order, all that stuff meant that he could no longer own a firearm. And Malvo couldn't. For two reasons. One, he's a kid. <laughs> One, he's a minor. And two, he's not a resident of the United States. Well, 
He's not a documented resident of the United States. Illegally documented. Yes. Yeah. But the biggest thing is that he was a kid. Yes. Yeah. So he did steal that gun. I'm not saying that's the biggest crime. I'm just saying that that's that would have gotten in the way first. Yes. Yeah. The groundwork being laid uh, will go into the more serious aspect of this episode, and that is the shootings. Yeah. So uh, now that we've given you an idea of what type of people would do what we're about to describe, we're going to have to break their crime spree up into two sections. There were their preliminary crimes that happened from February of 2002 onward, their Beltway, D.C., centralized killings, and those started in September. uh, Or they started in October. Uh, The first half is preliminary shootings. So these are all crimes that they did previous to the uh, murder spree in the D.C. Beltway area. That wouldn't start until October of 2002. This crime spree started in February and went all the way to September. So they were causing trouble long, long before uh, media attention caught them in the Beltway. The killing spree that these two gentlemen went on started in February 2002 and went to October of 2002. Uh, Their first killing would be in Tacoma where that rifle was stolen and it was a 21-year-old woman named Kenya and Kenya was the niece of John's ex-wife's friend. So John's ex, her friend, uh, supported their divorce. She supported her friend divorcing John. Her niece was the first person to be killed in Tacoma. And the prevailing theory is that John actually meant to kill her mother, the woman who pushed for the divorce from John, not her niece. Yes, because uh, Malvo is the one who pulled the trigger, yeah. and so the theory is he didn't know. He didn't know which person to kill. Because uh, she was staying at her aunt's house. So the theory is that he went and just didn't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next one was on March 19th. It was a 60-year-old man named uh, Jerry Taylor, and this happened in Tucson, Arizona. He was golfing at a golf course mid-game, just was shot and killed on the golf course. It was later found out that Muhammad's sister lived near the golf course, and he was visiting her at the time. And essentially, what they chalked it up to is he just took a pot shot from his sister's house, just targeted this random man golfing. Yeah, I'm going to take a brief moment to just underscore that you can't... I don't think you can... Uh, quite put into words how cold-blooded these murders were. The thing that's especially terrifying about them is that there was no pattern. Mm -hmm. There was seemingly not much of a motivation other than uh, chaos and having fun terrorizing people. Um, It really didn't seem as though there was a way for you to count yourself safe. You know, like when Jack the Ripper is killing prostitutes across England, everybody who's not a prostitute goes, okay, I'm safe. But the thing that, not that that's acceptable, but that will happen. What made this terrifying for everyone is that, you know, the first murder, that is very personal. So that's a different story. But by the second murder, they're just shooting people. And it's the start of an entire year of just taking out their aggressions on everyone around them. Sadly. And as anyone that watches any, this isn't a great parallel, but any sort of crime show like CSI or anything like that, Usually they talk about M.O. and, like, what demographic they go after. These guys, it was wrong place, wrong time. That was essentially their M.O. Are you standing there while I'm pulling the trigger? Yeah. That being said, we'll move on to... Well, there were multiple deaths and injuries tied to them that... So there were two murders and four fatal injuries, uh, or non-fatal injuries, uh, over the course of March through July that retroactively they were implicated for as well. August 1st, we have our third uh, murder attempt. Uh, I say murder attempt because it was their first failed murder attempt, not their last, but their first. So that's August 1st. That's in Hammond, Louisiana. Uh, A 51-year-old man named John Gaeta, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, was actually attending to a tire that Malvo had slashed. He set up a trap. He slashed his tire. Malvo uh, waited for him to come out. When he did, he shot him, he robbed him, uh, and he left. Um, Fortunately, Gaeta survived that. Mm -hmm. Um, He was rushed to an emergency room, and he survived. He did, and then he later got an apology, in 2010, I believe it was, got an apology letter from Malvo from prison, uh, which was one of many apologies that, Knowing them was probably thinly veiled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't do this and get away with a oops. I'm sorry. I have a hard time believing any apology for somebody that's doing things like this. A crime of passion, or even that first murder. Like oh, I was trying to do a favor for a man who I idolize. I 
I hate to say it, but I can understand how that can happen. But this, they were just cold blood killing people. Yeah. Yeah. This is a Grand Theft Auto rampage. Yes. And at the time, it was absolutely, it did, vi- violent video games came up a lot during this. Um, fortunately, it's been extensively proven that they don't actually lead to this type of thing. But this type of crime spree just feels like cold-blooded Grand Theft Auto murder. Yeah. Uh, then a month later, in September 5th, uh, at roughly 10.30 at night, Paul LaRuffa, mm-hmm. I believe is how you pronounce it, he was a 55-year-old man who owned a pizzeria in Clinton, Maryland. Yeah. So they traveled all the way from Louisiana to Maryland. Yeah. Well, yeah, so there's a there's a road trip going on here. They went from Tacoma now going down to Arizona, and they're coming back to the Maryland area. Yeah, they're coming down and then up. He was locking up his pizzeria when he was shot in the back. He did survive this. This was another man that survived, but his laptop was stolen. Okay. And the way they found out that this was actually one of their shootings was because of that laptop. And we'll talk about that towards the end when we talk about everything. Yeah, it would go on to be a pretty important piece of uh, evidence, yeah. Okay, so on September 21st, you get your first instance, something that these guys would go on to be known uh, for, arguably the scariest uh, element to this murder spree, other than the fact that it was you had no idea if you were safe, is that they were killing multiple people in a day. Yes. It was not one person every few days. This wasn't an Ed Gein type of situation. They were knocking people off. So, September 21st is the first example of that. In the morning, you have uh, a 41-year-old. Well, I say the morning, but it's 12.15 a.m., so, you know, midnight morning, whatever you want to call it. You have uh, a 51-year-old Million Wondamarium. I apologize, Woldemarium, I apologize if I've mispronounced that, uh, was closing up uh, a packaging store that they owned uh, and was shot with a 22 pistol, which didn't really fit the MO for their types of killings, uh, but it would later be tied to them. And then 19 hours later on that same day, Claudette Parker, a 50-year-old, a 52-year-old liquor store clerk in Alabama, was shot in the chest during a robbery. Her co-worker, Kelly Adams, was critically wounded and shot through the neck, and she survived. This comes up a lot. Pretty much every person who survived these guys got shot through the neck. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to kill them. They yes. just missed. Um, her co-worker, yeah, uh, her co-worker, 24-year-old Kelly Adams, was shot in the throat and survived. Uh, evidence found at the crime scene eventually tied this killing to the Beltway attacks because everything that happened this day, the robbery the day before as well, didn't really fit their later M.O. These are the pre- preliminary shootings, so these are all leading up to the Beltway shootings that they would have. So they went on a year-long crime spree, um, but it wouldn't be until after they were caught that we were able to tie these crimes to them. Yeah, people, uh, up until now, people weren't putting these together. These were random crimes across the country. Well, because it, it's just, it, it's so America's most wanted, you know? Yeah. Just every, robbing everybody, committing these crimes without, like, real any, any real motivation, not really any satisfaction. Yeah. Yeah, doing it for fun. Two days later, they made their way to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They At 6.30 p.m., a 45-year-old man, Hong M. Ballinger, was shot and killed with the rifle. Uh, and at the time, this was the real first time that journalists started to piece things together, but they still had no idea. They did realize that a lot of these were happening with that rifle, but they still didn't expect it to be the same person because it was across the country. Yeah, and it's a relatively common rifle. I mean, yeah. you, you can literally you walk into Walmart and buy that rifle. This is where people started to pick up, okay, something's going on, and then they moved again. All right, so September 23rd was the first killing with the Bushmaster rifle that was tracked to kind of maybe being something. Yeah, so that's when... Uh, journalists and investigators started picking up on a trend, but they still weren't piecing anything together because these were... I mean, who can blame them? These are such random crimes. Like, the first one feels like a personal killing, you know? Mm -hmm. But the second one, just shooting a guy on a golf course, it's very difficult to find somebody... Just getting shot out of the blue makes it incredibly difficult to find out what happened to you, especially if there's no motive, because the majority of crimes are solved by understanding motive. That's why earlier you brought up police procedurals, but the reason that they're like that is because that is kind of how crimes are solved. You go, Mm -hmm. okay, who would want to do this? How would they do it? Well, if you you're never going to think of this. You're never going to think, oh, I bet it was two homicidal men, uh, one former military guy who've decided that they're going to radicalize and just go on a crime spree. There was no way to tell it was coming. No, it's 
even knowing that that's what happened, it still seems fictitious. It still seems like this was just made up when Dude, it was a f- actual thing. That's why when I brought it up to you and I brought it up to everybody else, I've brought this up to several people of varying ages and it nobody has any recollection and it just blows my mind because it's like these guys went on a Thelma and Louise style crime spree across America shooting people and honestly we'll get into how they got caught but they very nearly didn't get caught and they probably wouldn't have. Uh, it was kind of their doing. So it's... It's fascinating to me that this isn't talked about more. People mm-hmm. still talk about Ed Gein, but we don't talk about John Allen Muhammad and Lee Marvo, you know? Yeah. After September 23rd, they that's when they made their way up yeah. to the Beltway. Yep, so they decided that they were going to go from the south. They were gonna, They went to ground for a little while, and then they would show back up on October 2nd. At 5.20 p.m., the first of the Beltway killings would start. That's when they would show back up. That's October 2nd. Uh, a shot was fired through a window of a Michael's. Uh, it missed the clerk. And because of that, this is the most American shit. Anybody who's a non-American listening to this is going to be like, how? That shot went through the window, was clearly a bullet, but because it seemed random, no one investigated it. Yeah. It was just completely ignored. No one was injured in... It missed everyone, and they just kind of brushed it off. They're like, eh. "It's wild that they'd be like, oh, random bullet, another day at Michael's." <laughs> yeah, is it, I've never worked at Michael's, but maybe it's that bad at Michael's. <laughs> <laughs> Joanne's is just like civil war every day. <laughs> but yeah, so we're joking, which we shouldn't be doing. And then one hour later, at six thirty, James Martin, a fifty-five-year-old that worked for the National Oceanic Study, was shot in the parking lot of a grocery store, and he would actually go on to be the first official victim of the Beltway shootings. Yes. Tell us about October 4th, or 3rd. Yes, the next day, October 3rd, uh, this was where they started to pick up and do multiple in one day. Uh, So there were four. Well, they tried the day before, but it was written off as no big deal. Uh, So there were four on October 3rd. At 7.41 is when they started, 7.41 in the morning. Uh, Landscaper James L. Buchanan, known as Sonny, was shot while mowing the grass. And this is the one that really got media attention. Well, that one was interesting because his neighbors thought that his... uh, uh, lawnmower had ma- uh, malfunctioned. Yes, they the thought it was backfired. Yeah, the 911 call is uh, we try not to play a lot of that stuff because eh, it just feels a little too personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just retelling people's stories. That seems a little too personal. But on that phone call, the woman who called it in legitimately thought, or it was a gentleman actually, he points out that he's bleeding quite a lot uh, and they thought that his lawnmower had somehow injured him. They got him to the hospital and the the doctor who attended to him said that he bled more than any person he had ever seen. And they even say in the 911 call, which goes into these being completely random, they're like, no one would, no one would want to shoot this man. Yeah. Like he has no enemies. Yeah. Who would shoot him in his on his lawn? That was the one that first picked up attention. Then about 30 minutes later, 8:12, 54 year old man. Uh, he was a taxi driver. His name was Prem Kumar Walakar, I believe is the way you pronounce that. Was filling up his taxi with gas at a gas station in. Aspen Hill in Montgomery County. He was just just filling up his taxi and was shot while filling up his taxi. And that was the first of what would become the only real MO they ever exhibited, which was picking people off who were gassing up their cars. Yes. Um, I know that for that entire... So, not not to date myself too much, but in 2002, I was very excited about driving. Um, And it became impossible. The idea was absolutely impossible. And... You couldn't go out and get gas. At the time, I would illegally ride my dirt bike around because I didn't quite have my license yet. Mm-hmm. And it was terrifying because it, it was already kind of scary enough to me. This is such a stupid thing to bring up, but I felt like so scared as a little kid already going to the gas station. And it's like I couldn't call the cops because I'm not supposed to be here on my dirt bike. It's just a terrifying idea. You know, like it's such a vulnerable position for people to be in. It's if you're going to take advantage of people and you want sitting ducks, it's a great one. You have to stand up. You're outside. There's a lot of broken up lines of sight. You know, it'd be hard to see if you were in a car. It's a scary place, but that he was the first, I know he was the first of the gas station killings. Yes. He wasn't the last and not even that day. No. Uh, up next, 20 minutes after that, they, they just drove around. Uh, there was 34-year-old lady, uh, Sarah Ramos. She got off the bus near a shopping center and was seated on a park bench reading a book uh, and was shot and killed. That's terrible, man. About an hour and a half later, 9.58, a lady was at a Shell gas station vacuuming out her car. 
Yeah. Or her van, um, which was the second of the gas station MO. Uh, she was 25-year-old uh, Lori Ann Lewis Rivera. Like I said, just vacuuming out her van. And then they waited almost 12 hours until 9.20 p.m. where Pascal... Charlotte, I believe is the way it's Charlotte. Charlotte. He was 72 years old. He was a retired carpenter and he was just walking down the road and they shot him and no one was really, it was 920 at night. No one was really around and, uh, coroner said he died about an hour later. Yeah. And in each of these cases, everybody's only shot once. Yes. Just never fire more than once, which is why sometimes there are survivors, which I think, in terms of, like, M.O., it shows a lot of arrogance to be like, oh, we can just shoot you once. Especially, I mean, it's also very uh, manipulative because they wait until it would only take one shot. You're gassing up or you're on the golf course or something. It should conceivably probably not take more than one bullet to yeah. put you down, unfortunately. If you look at the pattern here, it's kind of wild. It makes you wonder what they were doing all day, you know? Like, <laughs> were they reloading? Were they celebrating? What do you do in that situation for 12 hours after you've murdered... F- three people well at that point five people honestly i i believe it doesn't really say i believe they just found a place and slept because they've been driving for days and they've been doing this for days so that was probably just downtime yeah that makes sense i mean they they definitely were fans of their downtime so by october 4th malvo and muhammad had expanded the perimeter in which they were shooting people uh and they had also decided to take a couple days between the shootings so they'd slowed down a little bit um on october 4th a 43 year old woman named carolyn sewell was shot in a michael's parking lot at a mall while she was loading stuff into her car again somebody who's completely vulnerable and again somebody at michael's <laughs> that woman who worked at the um, Aspen Hill Michaels must have just thanked her lucky stars after all this was over. Yeah, once once everything got pieced together. That's a hell of an HR complaint. Hey, you remember three weeks ago when you said that bullet was no big deal and now I'm the only person of 30 who didn't die? Yeah. It's awful. Uh, it really is. Right around that same time is when a lot of school officials in the area started ensuring the public that they had everything under control, uh, their children would be safe. They started canceling like recess or any outdoor activities, after school curriculars, anything like that. That's when they started to shut that stuff down to try to keep the kids safe. Sure, sure, which understandably. And that brings us to a couple days later, uh, October 7th. I will give another warning. This yeah, is... so this is this is where we'll give the warning. Unfortunately, this this case uh, does involve a child. Yes. Yeah, so if uh, that is bothersome, please skip. Yeah. Uh, give you a couple seconds to do that. Yeah. And then I'll get into it. So October seventh at eight oh nine in the morning, uh, Iron Brown, or I believe is the way it's pronounced. He was thirteen year old student. He was on his way into school. He was running a little late, and he was shot in the chest. Uh, Luckily, his aunt, who had just dropped him off, was a nurse and hadn't left yet, was able to pick him up, rushed him to the emergency room, and uh, he did survive. And he ultimately testified at uh, one of the trials down the line. And this... Was this crime scene was one of the first big pieces of evidence that was left behind. So authorities went to the crime scene and found the shell casing from the shot. And that got them thinking about all the previous ones. And they started to go and look back at sites to see if they left the shell casing back at all of them, uh, which was the case. Almost everyone, they did leave the shell casing that tied a bunch of them together. But they also found a tarot card at the scene. It was the death card. And on the front, inscribed in it, it said, Call Me God. And on the back, it was written, For you, Mr. Police, call me God. Do not release to the press. This one, to me, felt like a desperate cry for attention. They're doing Joker shit with tarot cards. They shot a 13-year-old who, thank, thankfully, survived. Yes. Um, but 
they were shoot they shot a child they wanted attention they left this card and left the shell casing behind knowing full well that the police would then connect that to the series of crimes they'd been committing because they intentionally left those shell casings these are people who are familiar with firearms those those shell casings were left behind intentionally and that goes back to i mean call me god yeah it goes back to their arrogance yep that's the same them just taking one shot they were arrogant they were cocky and they thought we can get away with this we'll never be caught we're the best that there ever was we are god absolutely call me god do not release to the press that's a that's a bold thing to ask the cops to do so they said that and they said uh do not release to the press and the police tried their best <laughs> to honor this request but the details were made public by a local tv station and the washington post just one day later which uh gave them exactly what they wanted yep they, they wanted the attention, attention that they wanted yeah that's and I'm sure that's why they wrote it too. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you don't murder someone and leave behind. A, I mean, that's serial killer 101. This is I want you to look at me. I want you to pay attention to me. And especially doing it to a kid, like it's what they wanted. And they knew full well that they probably leaked it. Like they knew full well no one's hanging on to that information. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's too much. And and that luckily concludes any case to do with a child. Yeah. He did survive. He was detrimental to taking them down, which is an amazing thing. Yeah, to anybody who didn't want to listen to that portion, just know that the the child survived. He is alive today. Mm-hmm. He is well. Yeah. Um, okay, so October 9th at 8 in the morning, uh, 53-year-old civil engineer, Dean Harold Myers, uh, was shot while pumping gasoline at a Sunoco. Um, and that was right outside of Manassas, which is still in the same area in Virginia. Um, another guy shot uh, while getting gas. At this point, it started to inspire fear in the gas stations. You saw uh, some gas stations close. You saw people put up tarps. You saw lots of things to try to stop people from being able to see uh, into the gas pump area. Yeah. Uh- Two days later, October 11th, 9.30 in the morning, 53-year-old businessman Kenneth Bridges, uh, again, Exxon Station off Interstate 95 near Fredericksburg, shot while pumping gas. Yep, again, gas, pumping gas. And that, as they were taking their time, I think it feels like, this feels like taking pot shots. You know, it feels not dissimilar from the murder on the the golf course in the sense that it feels like they were just sh- sitting around waiting for the cops to, to get a clue. So on October 14th, at 9.15 p.m., you got a 47-year-old FBI intelligence analyst, which is, that's a big fish. Yeah. That's a that's a really big fish. So her name was Linda Franklin, um, and she was shot in a covered, you know, the covered parking that they have at Home Depot? Yes. So she was yeah. shot in one of those underneath it, but the witness that claimed to have seen it said that they were outside when they saw it, but then they were later tried and convicted of lying under oath. Yeah, the witness... And they were, in fact, inside. The witness was inside of the Home Depot, but when the police arrived, said, like, I was out here, I watched the whole thing, gave them information about a white van. Yeah, he gave a description. So he survived as well, uh, and he gave a description... Or wait, sorry. I thought that was the next person that gave the description. It, was it... Was it Matthew Dowdy who was the one who said that? Yeah, he was the one that gave the description. Oh, okay, hurt. Sorry. That description comes back later. Fuck. When okay. Find. Well, let me start right here with that then. Yeah. So that witness that not only was convicted of lying. Uh, oh shit! What did? What am I? It just fell out of my head. The white van. Oh yeah. So not only was he convicted, not only was Matthew Dowdy the uh, witness, the alleged witness, convicted in this case, but what he alleged was that it was a Middle Eastern-looking man in a white van, which we now know wasn't true. We now know that it was a uh, black man, two black men, in a blue caprice. So what he had to say was completely unreliable, which is why he got convicted for it, I suppose. Yes. uh, But it did lead to an APB on all white vans. That was the 14th, and this is when it really picked up. Yeah, recess was canceled. I mean, recess was starting to get canceled everywhere. I remember my school was like, I I can't honestly say that I know that recess was ever uh, canceled, but I can definitely say that we were talking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. And... 
high schools, middle schools, anybody, any school that went outside, elementary schools, I guess that's all schools <laughs> on the East Coast uh, were canceling any sort of outdoor activity. Some stopped busing. There was a lot of stuff. If not just canceling schools straight yeah, out. Yeah, 100%. Uh, then we, a couple days again, this is when they were yeah, they waiting went to ground. between things. Yeah, they went to ground for five days. Five days later, October 19th at around 8 p.m., 37-year-old man Jeffrey Hopper was shot in a parking lot at Ponderosa Steakhouse in Ashland, Virginia, and his wife, Stephanie, was able to call out to passersby, people driving past, people at the steakhouse. They were able to call an ambulance, get him to a hospital, and he's luckily survived. Uh, while they were investigating this crime, though, authorities discovered a four-page letter in the woods that was next to this Ponderosa Steakhouse. Yeah, yeah. That was the, the ransom letter. Yes, the letter demanded $10 million and said something that alluded to, I don't know the exact words, but it said, your children aren't safe, not here, not anywhere, not ever. Yeah, so they, they basically, in this now desperate failure... In a failed attempt to get attention with the tarot card, now they say, okay, we're demanding attention, uh, we're going to leave a note, and they're making demands now. They say, they threaten basically every child on, well, in the country, Yes. and say, unless we get $10 million, uh, we're not going to stop. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about why they wanted the money. Yeah, after we talk about how they got caught, we'll talk about the money. Because the money comes up in... So, October 21st, uh, Richmond police do pick up a couple guys uh, that match the description in a van that matches the description. White van, broken taillight, a couple Middle Eastern guys. Unfortunately for them, they were not the murderers, but they were here illegally and they were subsequently deported. Uh, so, while they didn't get shot, they were also victims of the manhunt. And that all came from that, like, bunk yeah. witness Matthew from the Dowdy. Home Depot. Yeah, the Home Depot witness, uh, which it's so interesting that that witness turned out to be as bunk as he was, considering that victim was an FBI intelligence analyst. Mm -hmm. the, now, I'm not going to say anything, but I like to think that anybody who listens to this, the conspiracy bells are going off in their head. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then the next day, October 22nd, a bus driver by the name of Conrad Johnson, he was 35 years old, was shot at 5.56 in the morning while standing on the steps of his bus. That coincided with that letter that was found. And the chief of police of Aspen Hill released one of the pages of the letter. And that's that was the page that said, your children are not safe anywhere at any time. Gotcha. Uh, Johnson was rushed to the hospital, but due to complications, did not survive. It's a shame. October 23rd is important for a couple of really big reasons. Mm -hmm. um, October 23rd would be the penultimate day on these men's crime spree. Yes, there was no shootings yeah, on they this did, day. They didn't shoot anybody. They were taking a break. They were uh, taking a little R&R, &R, putting their feet up, cleaning their gun. Um, but what was found that day is that ballistics confirmed from the shell casing that had been left uh, previously... The note that they had left, basically the clue they had left. that Those ballistics were matched to the bullet that killed Johnson while he was standing on his bus, making him the 10th victim that they knew of that they could immediately charge and trace. And it also meant that those ballistics helped prove that the stump in Tacoma behind that gun store is where they learned how to shoot that gun, which is what helped them find that gun and also what led them to a string of murders f across the country. Yeah, they, they found that casing... They were using metal detectors and stuff in Tacoma, found that it matched ones around and the bullets in that tree stump, found out that that gun was stolen, essentially pieced together this road trip yeah. and tied all these cases together. And that takes us to the next day. The 23rd, the literal smoking gun yeah, yeah, was the, figured out. Yeah, the shell casing. They found out that stump in Tacoma that I said would come up back in the story <laughs> later that was found that basically mapped out this that entire road trip is it Chekhov's stump Ch Chekhov's casing <laughs> and that brings us to the next day October 24th at 3.15 in the morning a person that was at a rest stop named Whitney Donahue noticed a blue Chevy Caprice yeah Donahue said in their testimony that they were kind of burning the midnight oil doing an overnight drive uh, and owned a Caprice and mm -hmm. knew about, the, I mean, everybody knew about the APB and pulled into a truck stop and <laughs> wouldn't you know it, 
There was the car. Yes. Uh, the two of them were sleeping in their car at this rest stop. It was off Interstate 70 near Myersville, Maryland. Yeah. But this person stopped at the rest stop to do their rest stop needs, saw it, and uh, tipped off the police. That's such a polite way to say take a shit. <laughs> well, you know, do their rest stop business. I guess it's mostly walk around and eat from vending machines. Yeah, it's make sure your legs don't die yeah. of atrophy. Um, four hours later, the chief of police relayed a cryptic message through, I believe it was the radio, because like we said, they were very narcissistic. They were very cocky. They were keeping an eye on things. And the chief of police said on the radio, you have indicated that you want us to do and say certain things. You have asked us to say, we have caught the sniper like a duck in a noose. We understand that hearing us say this is important to you. This was believed to be from this fable, and it was part of the letter. Okay. Part of the letter was like, if you do find us, say this phrase. And the chief of police said it on the radio to be like, we got you. Um, the, first, the first officer on scene was a man by the name of Wayne Smith of Maryland State Police. That's a great state police officer name. Wayne, Wayne. Smith. Yep. <laughs> uh, he was driving a unmarked police vehicle and pulled into the rest stop to ensure that, yes, in fact, they were there. Yeah, he did come to check on the car. So what he did is he saw that the car was there, saw that they were asleep in the car, and took his unmarked vehicle and parked it blocking the exit of the rest stop. Because if you've ever been at a rest stop, you know, you get the on-ramp or the off-ramp. Yeah, there's the, tr- there's the truck section and the, the cars. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so he drove through the car section, saw the car there, kept going, and blocked the one exit. Then as more state troopers arrived, they didn't have their lights on or their sirens or anything. They came quietly, just kept padding up cars at the entrance and exit. A truck driver was trying to leave while they were doing this. His name was Ron Lance. He was trying to leave the rest stop, and one of the cops stopped him, explained what was going on, told him to get to safety inside the rest stop, and commandeered his truck, parked his trailer in front of the exit, and then parked his truck in front of the entrance. And once they knew that they were stuck there. They, were, they knew they were asleep in the car and both the entrance and the exit were covered. That's when the SWAT team went in. They raided the vehicle. They found the stolen gun, the bipod used to keep the gun up in the trunk, and the laptop. That Which... was the laptop and the wallet from the two people all the way back in... Was that April? Yeah, in April. Yeah. And that's how those murders were tied to them. Exactly. They yeah. they found that, oh, this laptop is a guy that was shot and didn't die. Or, yeah, the laptop was found to a guy that was shot. The wallet was found to the guy that was shot but didn't die and found, like, help. So that, plus the stump, tied this whole road trip together. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because those crimes otherwise wouldn't have been solved at all. Mm-mm. Those, I mean, the... The Beltway murders, certainly, because those were easy to track, but all the robberies and stuff. And then ballistic tests later conclusively tied the gun to 11 of the 14 shootings, including the one through the Michaels window where no one was injured. Yeah, Um, worst day at work ever. Like we said, there was a twenty-two pistol that was never recovered, but you may be thinking, well, how were those accredited? That was the laptop. So that was one of them, and another one with the twenty-two comes into their trials. Okay, which is the next big thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they both would be captured. Obviously, they were going to be tried. Uh, Muhammad uh, was given six life sentences, um, and then eventually, in two thousand and five, was actually put on death row, and in two thousand and nine, was executed. Yes, and Malvo was also given six consecutive life sentences. He was also going to put on death row, but a couple things got in the way of that. One being he was 17 at the time, and in a lot of states that the crimes took place in, they said that anyone under 18 can't get the death penalty. Um, some states do allow it, but some yeah, others. You can so be tried was, as an adult in some. So on the federal level, he wasn't allowed to. And he also did a plea bargain if he were to testify at Muhammad's trial. Yeah, he turned on John hard. Yes. Yeah, he gave him up 100%. But he also admitted to 
being the trigger man for all the shootings. He did. So he gave extensive detail that kind of proved, yes, we were the ones that did it. Yes, he essentially, he like you said, he turned. He said, this man essentially raised me and then coerced me into doing this. He gave a motive, which there are three motives that yeah, popped the mo- up and the motives in this case are wild. So, like we said, the first motive, well, the first and clearest motive that makes sense is they just wanted the ultimate goal of creating chaos and shutting down things across the United States. Yeah, there was well, there was this idea that they were trying to. Uh, kidnap children. Also, people believe that they were going to D.C. because Mildred, John's second wife that we talked about earlier, was living in D.C. at the time. So people, uh, it was brought up during John's case that it was possible he was trying to get his children back by shooting Mildred. The problem with that is that Mildred didn't get shot and 11 other people did. Not to mention that uh, it Malvo pulled the trigger on pretty much all of them. Um, so that's a really weird one. The second one, yeah, that would that Malvo sort of just spilled the beans on. It was like, no, we just wanted to cause a bunch of chaos. But the oddest one is what they were going to do with the money. Yes. Yeah. $10 million that we mentioned in the, in that four page letter that had their manifesto, which has not been released, but it has their manifesto. It had the threatening, it had the threat towards children. And it also wanted the $10 million ransom. They said that they were going to use that $10 million to quote, Set up a camp to train children how to terrorize cities. Yeah, they were going to start like a, 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 I don't know, a, a little ISIS camp. You know, like they're, the idea was to start a sort of a domestic terrorist camp and start with them young. Um, and that's super scary. Like, and it was something that John had uh, familiarity with. You know, he had been around uh, traffic children, and he also had spent so much time. And there was a like a prevailing theory that that's what he wanted to do with all of the money, which is very dark. But it also makes me think of um, what's the academy from Logan, where Wolverine wants to get all the mutants to Canada, all uh, the yeah. Canadian kids. <laughs> Feels like that kind of. Uh. To keep going with Malvo, uh, Malvo is still alive. Yep. He is in prison. He's married. He did just recently get married in prison. Another thing was his six consecutive life sentences were dropped to one life sentence. Yeah. Uh, under, what is that, the Eighth Amendment, Cruel and Unusual Punishment. They said that eight consecutive, six consecutive life sentences was cruel and unusual punishment. Doesn't make sense to me. The number of life sentences. Yeah. If it's more than one, it's you ar- don't get more than one life. Yeah, it's sort of an arbitrary repeal. And he, he I know that he was... he did, One of the conditions of his conviction is that after 20 years of time spent, he can apply, he can, he can make an appeal to be released right on uh, parole. Yes, one of... It was a law that was actually instated while he was in prison that said if you were convicted of a crime under the age of 18... You're allowed to, if it was a life sentence, you're allowed to apply for appeal, or repeal, no appeal, I was right the first time. (laughs) You're allowed to apply for appeal if you serve 20 years. He did do that, um, but the case was dropped by both lawyers, like on both sides. They immediately were like, this man does not deserve to see the light of day. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, during his case, he went out of his way to emphasize that he had been coerced and that it was John's doing. Um, And his mother insisted up and down, like everyone's mother does, that there's no way her baby is capable of that. But, I mean, didn't he, you know, it's hard to... He admitted to all of the stuff. He he happily went along with all of it. I'm not going to make any accusations of the guy, but it just doesn't... It felt like he was into it, too. This doesn't feel like it was entirely John's doing. There's a lot of speculation about whether or not these two men would have ended up murdering or being as violent as they were had they not met one another. And uh, I think John at least would have been. Yeah. So who knows about for Lee? Uh, the ultimate idea was that the two of them would recruit a large number of young boys, make their way up to Canada. Like we said, this was all in Malvo's personal testimony he described how Muhammad intended to train uh, all the boys in weapons and stealth, just like he had been taught. And then once they finished their training, 
Muhammad would send them across the United States to carry out more mass shootings, just like they had done in Washington and Baltimore. Essentially, he was the prototype, is what he was described to the court, which... Again, that's just Wolverine. Yeah. This is just Wolverine. This is Project X. He... Wait, is Wolverine... Is Project X ISIS? Project X is Wolverine. Yeah. Yeah, he was Experiment X. Project X is the movie. Yeah. Whatever. (laughs) Project X... But is it ISIS? I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, He, like we said, he's still alive, still in prison. Um, May he rot in there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But there was a lot of other things that came from this case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was there were laws, there were regulatory actions especially in terms of firearms. Uh that didn't I feel like the store Bullseye was sued. Bushmaster was sued. Yeah, they were given they had a set of violations 283 pages, pages thick. thick. Yeah. That's uh, the incredible. ATF and YouTubers write shorter books. Well, they don't write them. YouTubers pay someone else to write shorter books. Yeah. Uh, in July of Meek 2003, Mill. the ATF revoked their firearms license. And he, the they were really like, oh, sad- we don't actually sell them, so that's okay. Maybe we'll just steal them from us. Uh, the sad thing was the owner of Bullseye Shooter Supply was a former staff sergeant with the U.S. Army Rangers. His name was Brian Borgelt, I okay. believe is how you pronounce it. Um, he transferred ownership to the store to a friend and continued to own the building and then operate the shooting range next to it that they did the training. So did he lose his license? Yes, but not much came about with him. Uh, some other things that happened was the Brady Center of uh, the Brady Center to prevent gun violence set up a legal project, a legal action project on behalf of the families of all the victims and the people that survived as well. They filed a civil lawsuit against Bullseye Shooter Supply and Bushmaster Firearms. They ultimately, uh, let's see how, the suit claimed that Bullseye Shooter Supply ran its gun store in such grossly negligent uh, manner that like we talked about, guns frequently disappeared. They didn't keep records when they did sell them. They advertised things as snipers instead of hunting rifles, which, is that illegal? Not really, but it's, it's amoral. Yeah, it's... yeah. It's instead a- of being like, hey, check out this gun that's meant to hunt animals, they're essentially being like, this is meant to kill people. Yeah, this is meant to hunt And that's exactly humans. what happened. Yeah, absolutely. The case was set for trial in April of 2005, so three years, essentially. Right before it went to trial, it was settled. Um, The families got $2 million from Bullseye and $500,000 from Bushmaster, and Bushmaster also agreed to educate its every person that sold their weapons on safer dealings, how to like just safer business practices in general, which is a great thing. Yeah. Uh, if it, I mean, you know, how, if, if, if it, it's effective. If it stuck. Yeah. <laughs> and Sonia Willis, I believe was her name. She was the mother of the bus driver, Conrad Johnson. Okay. Said that her family took part in the lawsuit, not for the money, but to send a message uh, that you should res- be responsible and accountable for the actions of irresponsible people when you make these guns and put them in your uh, put them in their hands. So, her thing and it was a sentiment shared amongst other families, being like, "Did these men do horrible things? Yes, but you're also at fault for one, not keeping track of your guns. If you're a gun seller, kind of what you have to do." Yeah, I mean it's in. It's incredibly important. That's why guns get uh, registered. That's why they have serial numbers. These things are really important. And to the manufacturers being like, you should, you shouldn't be giving these weapons to people who aren't going to treat them with respect, and then in 
turn give them to more people who aren't going to treat them with respect. Absolutely. You mean the train of teens they were going to pick up at YMCAs and orphanages on the way up? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another thing that came out of this, there is a reflection terrorist built in 2004 in Wheaton, Maryland at the Brookside Gardens. That is a memorial to all the victims. Yeah, it's beautiful. And there is another one constructed in the Government Plaza of Rockville, Maryland in 2014. If uh, you're ever in the area... Yeah, check it out. Check it out. Pay your respects. It's the least any of us can do. Uh, so, yeah. the I mean, it was... It was ripped from the headlines uh, in a lot of shows. It shows up in uh, a lot of places. Um, actually, I'm not even going to talk about this stuff. I don't think I'm going to. Uh, right? The film and television stuff? What do you think? I was going to talk about a couple of them. Yeah, go ahead. Just pad through some time. Yeah, go for it. And one of the things I wanted to touch on is throughout the years, like I said, when you brought it up to me, the thing that came to mind was the, the Bones episode. Yeah. where. There was a person in a trunk shooting people, and that was a big thing. It has been a big thing throughout the years. The one that... I know there's a Law & Order episode. There is a Law & Order episode. There was a CSI Miami episode that was supposed to air November of 2002. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Where it was a sniper killing three random victims at rush hour, and... They pulled the episode because they're like... Oh, because a week earlier these guys were caught? Exactly. Come on. It's, uh... Man, that is trashy. Just bad taste. Yeah, that's trashy. What do you expect from CSI Miami? Yeah. Um, year later, 2003... <laughs> yeah! <laughs> CSI Miami sucks! <laughs> um, there was a Law & Order episode titled Sheltered, which didn't exactly say that that's what they were alluding to but a lot of things with the cases in that episode alluded to the dc sniper attacks okay Uh, there was a forensics file episode there have been a couple of tv movies uh dc sniper 23 days of fear is one of them that was on usa in 2003 (laughs) um there was a whole episode about it on american gangsters the bet show i think a william shatner show did an episode on it too Yes, uh, what was the name of that? It oh, was... I don't know. Unexplained or something. I don't remember. No, that one was... Aftermath. Uh, yeah. Aftermath with William Shatner. Yeah. Uh, there was an episode titled DC Sniper Victims where he explained everything. That was a biography channel. There's a 2010 film called DC Sniper based on everything. Another film, Blue Caprice. There are a bunch of other... An FBI show, NCIS, there's a Lifetime movie, or a Lifetime show called Monster in My Family, where they interviewed Mildred the whole time. Okay. As, and her meeting the surviving victims and the families of the deceased, and Lee Malvo also appeared on the show while in prison, and a lot of other... Documentaries have been made. Films have been made based around it. Um, There has been a lot made about this and to bring light to it, which is so strange considering that it's still a very forgotten thing. I just think it speaks to how scary it was at the time. Yeah. Because all of the things that you see, like all the shows you see that it was on, it was all around that time. You know, like none of them are too much later. I mean, some of the documentaries and stuff, what we're talking about now, you know, we're talking about it almost 20 years later. Mm -hmm. But at the time, sure, it was popping up because it was trendy and trashy for Law & Order to rip something straight from the headlines. You know, Lorena Bobbitt was also... You know, uh, there's an allegory episode where, uh, oh man, a guy got his dick cut off. That's crazy. Has that ever happened in real life? Is that yeah. in the headlines? So it happens, you know. I think there's an impulse to want to do the Bonnie and Clyde sort of thing, to be John Dillinger. But, you know, I think these guys speak to how unromantic that becomes when all you're doing is murdering people. Yes. The thing that's fun about that is stealing the money and driving away fast. Because yeah. all the murdering is just dark. That was... The Beltway Sniper. Beltway Snipers. Um, I was happy to share it with you guys. I hope you enjoyed listening. If we missed anything or if you want to add anything to the conversation, by all means, leave a comment. I know I mentioned last week that this week was going to be about music. uh, And it's uh, 
effect on the brain. That's a project that's actually cooking, so that's coming in a couple of weeks. And also, because of what happened in DC, we wanted to do something that thematically could, I don't know, talk about the thing we're all thinking about without thinking about it. So this seemed appropriate. But yeah, if you enjoyed, by all means, um, like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube. If you're listening on any of the other formats, thank you for listening to us. Uh, And we will be back, same bat channel, same bat time, next Wednesday with another lovely podcast for you guys. Yeah, uh, if you enjoyed, share us with your friends, your mom, your dog. He won't get it. But uh, (laughs) also follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Yep. Action.